You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Call me Mrs. Wetsit. Mrs. Who? No, Mrs. Wetsit. Mrs. Who is... Oh, she's like a billion years older and way more knowledgeable. What can I do for you, Mrs. Wetsit? I called her Ceiling Sheets, guys. She's harmless. You're six. Come on. What do you know about harmless? Have I ever been wrong? Well, one of these days you might be Charles Wallace. Oh, I highly doubt that. He's one of the greatest minds in recent history. He's prodigious. But of course, we can't take any credit for our talents. It's how we use them that counts. Welcome back to the 602 Club. I am your host here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm glad to be here tonight as we're going to be talking about a newer movie that just came out in the theaters called A Wrinkle in Time, and I'm very excited to have my partner in crime from our Owl Post podcast, Drea Coffin. In fact, Drea, I mean, I've got the cot in the corner. You might just want to sleep like because you're going to be here next week, too. I'm be here tomorrow anyway. <laughs> and next week, yeah. I'm going to be around for a little while, guys, so sorry, sorry in advance. <laughs> oh, no reason to be sorry. I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, and, I mean, you know, kind of cool that for two weeks in a row, we have stories that are kind of like female-led stories, right? So it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to see how they play out and how they do. Um. But before we hit the movie and, and talk about that, I wanted to remind I, I wanted to remind everybody that you can find our shows everywhere. But the best place to go to find Trek FM shows is Apple Podcasts. Um, find us at iTunes.com slash Trek FM and you'll find all the shows we do. Now while you're over there, I, I really appreciate all the people who have already given us star ratings and reviews and um hit us up with a new one it's been a while since we've gotten one and it definitely helps people find the show it helps people find the show so make sure you hit us up with a star rating review and i'll i'll thank you on the show when you do also uh you can find us wherever you get your podcasts so uh just about every single platform you can get podcasts on we are on so you can find us there we're on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can also find us online at Trek.FM. Well, while you're over there, you can hit discussion on any of the menu bars, and that would bring you over to our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook, which is fantastic. Um, you can find us uh, on Facebook under the Babel Conference. You can type that into the search field, and you can also find us there. And uh, while you're at the website, if you wanted to send us an email, go to Trek dot fm slash contact choose the show choose the 602 club and you will be able to send me an email and then anybody else who's on the show that week and we can talk more about what we said or uh maybe have some ideas for the show or things you want to hear us talk about in fact guys somebody hit us up on facebook in the babel conference today and they're like hey it'd be great if you talked about uh jumanji uh the new one that came out and i was like well Okay, so I put it on the schedule. <laughs> so you never know. We had an open spot, and I was trying to figure out what to put there. And so we're going to be welcoming y'all to the jungle, man. So um, thank you so much for the idea. Um, hint, hint, it was worth talking about. So um, so A Wrinkle in Time came out uh, in the movie theater. And A Wrinkle in Time is a beloved book by Madeline Lingle. And it's been around for over 50 years now. And just a beloved childhood classic. A lot, uh, if you've never read it, it's really in the same vein as something like The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it has that feel to it and even kind of has that worldview to it. So it's very similar to that. So I wanted to ask you just kind of what your wrinkle history was. Um, I mean, I've got a lot around my eyes these days. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm joining you there. <laughs> We ha- we have an infant now, and yes, I'm starting to join that uh, that wrinkly club now. Oh well. Um, I remember reading it and loving it as a kid. I remember really falling in love with it. 
Um, I have not read it in probably over 20 years now. I had every intention of reading it before the movie, but the aforementioned infant kind of throws a wrench into plans nowadays. Why? So, um, she doesn't like to read yet? No, no, she doesn't quite like to read yet. Um, but I do remember it being a really fantastical book. I kind of went back and read up on the plot a little bit on like Wikipedia before I went to the movie just to remind myself of a few of the elements. Um, and so uh, I remember I remembered enough about it. I remembered enjoying it enough that the trailer made me excited. I liked how fantastical it looked. I really liked how like visually stimulating it appeared to be. Um, so I was like, hey, if it's going to be visually great and if it's the story I remember from when I was a kid, like this is exciting. I'm, I'm all for it. You know, it, it's funny because this is one that I didn't read when I was a kid, but I read it back in 2014, so it had been a while, and um, I, I enjoyed it then. Um, you know, it's always different, too, when you read a children's book as an adult. Um, you know, there, there's a whole you know different experience there. But it was interesting because before the movie came out, I was able, I do not have a, an aforementioned child, so, um, or a child <laughs> so in general. So we can reread the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I had the time and I was able to reread it again. And I, I find my, I found myself liking the book even more the second time around, maybe because I was just picking up more nuance to it. And um, it, it's one of the things that I really like about books from that era um, something like Narnia or this, or um, I'm even thinking a little bit earlier, like Peter Pan. Um, a lot of times those books have a lot of hidden depth to them that a lot of children's books don't have now. It, it's one of the reasons I think that we both enjoy, love talking about Harry Potter like we do on Outposts, because there's a lot to talk about. Um, Rowling doesn't pull any punches with the kids. She has really deep thematic elements and ideas and the struggles of what it means to grow up and, and, and to be a person in this world. And I think La Ingle does that too. You know, the, the, the main characters and everything struggle with a lot of things um, and uh, even struggle with what it means to grow up and kind of find out your parents aren't perfect and like that they can't handle everything and there are going to be things you have to learn to do on your own and stuff like there's a lot of stuff going on so I really enjoyed the reread and so I was interested then to see the movie because you know um, I enjoyed uh, for the most part the adaptation that uh, Walden Media and Disney had done with the original Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, the other two they did were garbage um but the the first one <laughs> was very good it don't was a, sugarcoat it at yeah, all <laughs> it was it was a good adaptation so i was excited i thought okay well they did that right so maybe that this will turn out really well and so yeah it'll be interesting to talk through the movie and, and see how they did but one of the things that um i i thought was kind of fun was the way that they cast the movie and that they created some um, diversity in the characters. And one of the ways they did that too, I thought was kind of smart is because it was never really called on. It's like, it's not like made a big deal. It just is, which was great. Um, and so what did you think of the, the little girl we had playing Meg? Her name is Storm Reed. Um, how did you feel she did in the lead role? Cause she has a lot to do. I mean, she's, the entire movie pretty much takes place from her point of view, really. Right. So before I speak about her performance specifically, um, I want to say that uh, this movie in general, I think it suffered from a few different things. Um, and when I was sort of talking through my feelings for the movie, <laughs> as I left the theater with my husband, um, we really sort of had to, I had to be very cognizant and break down what didn't work for me and why that didn't work for me. Um, so for me, I think that I was so in love with the diversity in this cast and I loved the visual component. They like, they had a really balanced group of people. They all worked really well together. I think that some of the characters did better than others. Um, I feel like we had some problems with Stormy and her performance as Meg. 
solely based on her being a child actor and solely based on the fact that she's kind of a first time starring actor and you have a first time ish director. And I feel like the director had some learning opportunities and that she could have pulled some more out in some places. Um, I think that part of it, the failure too was in the writing of this character. I do not recall her being so angry in the book. Um, and maybe that's just a recollection issue. Maybe you can help me out there. Um, I don't, I mean, I remember her being upset that her dad left and I remember that that was really like sort of altering to her attitude, but I don't remember that it manifesting in this like hating everyone. And I I definitely remember the self hate and the self doubt aspects to her because I feel like that's what made her character so relatable to, to young girls. But I don't remember it being such like a hostile to everybody else sort of attitude. Um, and so that to me was over that overshadowed the self doubt. Like we didn't get kind of a self doubt. We kind of got like an angry, angsty teenager, which I don't recall being the case in the book. So that didn't really like work. For me. One of the things um, that they do in the story uh, is they change the fact that he's been gone only about a year or so in the book. In the movie, he's been gone four years. For like four years. So. I think one of the things is is that that hurts the story because you're kind of like this kid would have gotten over this by this point if it had been four years of their life, right? I mean, like, or they would have had been in a different place yeah, in the mourning absolutely. process than she yeah, was, yes. right? Like, she was very much so stuck at that first step of mourning and mm-hmm. like the denial and all of that is where she still was living, and it had been so long. And there are definitely people that that is true for and that resonates for them, right? Like, there's people who will take them ten years to get over something like this, but it felt less believable because of how much time had passed. Yeah, and it just didn't it didn't fit the story, and I don't know why they really changed that. It, it seemed to not make sense to me. Uh, and again, I do think it hurts. Um, in the book, uh, Meg is somebody who is kind of disgruntled um, and kind of treats everybody with disdain. Um, part of that is that the character in the book, too, is legitimately super smart. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she She is said to be kind of, and and the whole book is about Meg and her faults, right? And and the fact that her faults actually play in her impatience and all that kind of stuff. It's in fact one of the gifts that she's given by one of the misses is her faults. Um, And it's a very important thing because um, it is about her uniqueness, um, about who she's created to be. Like that's a part of Meg learning, like everybody's created to be who they are not somebody else. And so um, this story kind of uh, hampers because, again, I think you called that rightly, the script does not do a good enough job of explaining either of these children and their gifts. Um, because Any of these children right, and their gifts because, or where they came from. Right, because, um, you know, the, the character of Charles Wallace really suffers with this as well because... Again, the book goes into much more detail about how he is a very special little boy. In fact, he's not even in school at all, yet he's too young for school. So he's about probably four, almost five. Yeah, he's not He's not quite five, or if he's five, he's a very young five. Right. He's had, like, missed the kindergarten cutoff. Yep. So, um, and that makes, again, in the book, that makes much more sense, and yet he's this intellect beyond intellects. And so, again, you get this feeling like this whole family is full of these very, very smart people. And Well, and I also think in the book, I remember they really paint out Calvin's character a lot better in the beginning. You end up with sort of this explanation of who he is, and you get a little more perspective on him and his yes. life at the beginning. So you get kind of a character development, and not just this random character who's like dropped in, and he's like, I'm just here because... Like, literally, because that was his reason for being yeah, there. Because you look cute. And then there's this... Oh, yeah, I don't even get me started on that yet. But um, but it's just like there isn't... There isn't a good good character development. You don't, you don't quite care about them yet, but you mm-hmm. kind of do, but you definitely... Like, I, by the way, I would see the actor who plays Charles, Wall- Charles Wallace in anything else that he's ever in because in this dark drab, he was the sh- him and Reese Witherspoon were the two standout characters for me. I would go see them again in a heartbeat. But it just, there was just so much that 
didn't make sense about her character and didn't feel like it was believable and it didn't feel like it was really pulled out of her the way maybe a more seasoned director could have done. Um, in a, in a like, okay, so let's play around with this. Okay, that's good. You're saying the right things, but we're not really seeing them in the body language. So let's try right. this again. Let's make it a little more over the top because then it'll come across as real. You know, I felt like there was a lot of her looking into the camera very intensely. Like I really wish you guys could all could, could visually see because she was like very much so like, <laughs> like lots of staring yes. directly into the camera through her glasses like she acted the crap through her glasses which is really hard for actors to do is to act through their props um but she really acted through those glasses like she was not letting them impede her in any way but it just wasn't believable it wasn't enough for me i i think she has yep. potential but i don't know that it was pulled out in her in this particular movie. yeah and i i agree because honestly i feel like the again the, the the main issue here is that the setup for the story and for the children and the characters, their characterization and understanding who they are and why they are the way they are and all of that, it doesn't come across strongly enough. So that in the important moments, like when you get to the end and everything, um, we don't really understand why Charles Wallace is the only one to go off with the it. Because And you kind of don't care. Yeah. Um, because like it, you want him to be okay, yeah. but like you kind of don't care. <laughs> yeah, you don't. Um, and uh, and then it's unfortunate too because the the main reasons that Calvin is there in the book because he's somebody who can talk to people and that kind of stuff never gets played out in the story whatsoever. So he just kind of becomes this strange love interest for Meg, which is very. I wouldn't say it's weird minor. and inappropriate. It, it, it's it's not. I wouldn't say it's minor to the book, but it's also not the only reason he's there. But this feels like the only reason he's there is because he kind of likes her. So there's this there's this trope that women get often in books and movies and things, and that they are the female character is often there to further the development and the plot for whatever male main character. Um, it's just, you know, I think Bond, the Bond girls, they really serve no purpose other than to further the character of James Bond, right? Um, it almost felt like a turn play on that and that Calvin's character was only there to further Meg's character, um, which doesn't make him a valued character. Right. Like you don't care about him. You aren't really vested in him. And because they're such young kids, you're also not really vested in their relationship either because it's weird and creepy and kind of gross. Yeah, you're like, they're 14, so okay. And you don't even know how old they are. Yeah. They could be 12 for all you know. Like, they're very young. Like, they, you don't know how old they are. You're never given any context into, like, what grade they're in or anything like that. So, and they both look very young for their age. So, in the book, I want to say you're right. They're like 14, but yeah. in the movie, they look like they could be 12. Yeah, like they look like they could be at the start of middle school. Um, and just there's just these weird moments between them where they're building this sexual chemistry, and they're like really close together. And there's like these close-ups of them like staring at each other. And um, they picked a kid, a male kid, with like super sensual lips that he always sort of purses out. And you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> can we can we, ugh, uh, can we stop yeah and then even at the end they hug and you're like this is still just kind of creepy and ugh, ugh. and then the dad's watching i don't i don't know it just ugh, ugh. <laughs> i think i'm summing it up well there yeah <laughs> yeah uh, title of the show ew <laughs> ew <laughs> ew uh, but uh yeah but it, it, it he was not there as his character um he had one moment of peril where you're kind of like well that sucks he fell off the back of that but even then you just mm -hmm. you don't ever really know that he gets saved by tessering like he just you if you're not going to invest fully in that character you should have just omitted the character altogether it was not needed right right well and and again in many ways they they excise the part of the book that has to do with his character and the reason that he's there. And so, and, and, and because of that, he becomes a superfluous character that you've kind of only put in because he's one of the quote-unquote main characters from the story, but you haven't made him one. So, um, right. They omitted yeah. lots of other characters. I mean, I mean the they had family. two other 
kids that they totally Yeah, the made. Murray family yeah. was much bigger than yeah, they it had was twins. in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And she was the oldest and the twins were in the middle and then there was Charles Wallace and yeah, it was it was real it was real weird. But the editing choices and the adaptation choices they made were not Yeah, good. absolutely. Yeah, no. We'll talk about that a little bit later because I have some some actual camera work and stuff complaints Some thoughts yeah but um <laughs> what about the misses um we have miss witch miss what's it and miss who uh what did you think because we've got oprah reese witherspoon and mindy kaling okay so very different from the book um again they're these very elaborate dress costumes and it's visually beautiful and stimulating i don't mind that deviation from the book um i loved reese witherspoon as miss what's it she rocked it to me like the perky spunky has this like forgets that they're human like i thought that was great and it reminded me a lot of the original story like i was so on board for that <clears throat> mindy kaling was just mindy kaling she was just um, quoting all the wrong people yeah i mean I get what she was trying to. They were trying to modernize the same thing. Yeah, but, but at like, least find quotes that have something similar to what they were in the book, or at least try to make them as bigger than life as sort of Ren as um, Reese Witherspoon was playing. Right? Like, yeah, I mean, you're quoting larger like than life outcast. character. Come on. I mean, just make them more over the top. Yes. That character needed to be a little... She was supposed to be the quirky one, and she was not quite quirky enough for me. Mindy Kaling, it was like watching her just be Kelly Kapoor, but in like a weird dress. And then she stopped. Then sometimes she would quote, and sometimes she wouldn't quote, and they explained it once, but then they never explained it again when she did it again. And it just... It didn't work for me. And lastly, Miss Who... Oprah. Yeah, Oprah. No, she's and Miss lastly, Witch. Mindy Kaling's Miss Who. Yes. Okay, Miss Witch, Oprah. To me, it was just watching Oprah. It was watching Oprah be Oprah. Um, I would have, again, liked a little larger than life, a little over the top. Um, I feel like all three of those characters are so quirky and over the top and so different that the moment she has with Meg when they're walking in to see the seer... I could have been so much greater if she was such an over-the-top person and then she kind of had like a, a down-to-earth, let's talk about this for real moment. But instead, she sort of had this just, I'm Oprah and I'm playing Oprah as Oprah. Um, and again, to me, that goes back to the director, being a newer director, not being able to out that Oprah-ness, right? Not being able to push her further and push her bigger. It's either that she was intimidated because it's a freaking Oprah, right? And she's a huge name. Or she just didn't feel like it needed to, but I didn't buy it. I was watching Oprah. She wasn't able to break the stereotype of her off-screen persona using her character. And it just didn't. Yeah. Honestly, I think this is why you don't cast somebody like Oprah for this role. Agreed. Um, mainly because also the role just had her coming off as pontificating the gospel according to Oprah. And that's not what this story needs because that's not right. who the story is whatsoever in the book. And it's it's not what this is about. But in the end, the thematic elements became so much closer to the things that Oprah is famous for talking about in her kind of worldview than what the actual worldview of the book was. And that exorcism of thematic elements destroyed the story, actually. And it right. really hurt that it was Oprah there to do it because, again, like you're saying, she's just overpowering everything with her Oprah-ness. Um, right. And, you know... I get... I mean, I get why Disney wanted to remove the religious elements of, of the story. I get why they wanted to do that because you're trying to appeal to a larger audience because you're trying not to be affiliated with any sort of re religious thematics, right? Like, especially considering sort of the legacy that your founder has with his anti-Semitics. Like, I get that you're trying to sort of not align in a, in a, a religious fashion. And there's a couple things to that. One, don't make a religious movie. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, just don't, don't make a wrinkle in time. Yeah. Right. Call it something else, right? Some, some story inspired by a wrinkle in time or something. Like, I don't know. Call it something else. Um, or... 
you still have to remove those elements and then make sure your story still makes sense without those pieces. Mm -hmm. And by doing that and then replacing those pieces with a well-known character who sort of has her own life philosophy and her own sort of dogma, if you will, you've not religiously affiliated yourself, but you've still sort of added a, like a focus. You've added, like you were saying, a gospel of sorts to it. That's just not religiously based. And it just didn't, right. it's not the same. It didn't work quite the same, right. especially considering that not everyone knows what Oprah's like. Not everyone watched Oprah every day. Not everyone knows what her philosophies are and how it works and knows what to expect and can fill in those blanks like you can with a mainstream religion like Christianity or Judaism or something like that, yeah. where a lot of those things are already known and they're sort of like, you can sort of expect your viewers to know when you say God what that sort of means or when mm -hmm. you say, you know, when you say good and evil, you can have some idea what the context is there. When you take that out, you have to now reintroduce what those are. And they didn't do that at all. They just sort of assumed you knew. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it on the head. They they took out the foundation of the story, which was the the Christian theological basis of La Ingle's characterization and um, thematic elements for the story. They excised those and they, they tried to replace them with something else. But that something else doesn't have the weight to hold the foundation of the story, and it just kind of comes crumbling down because none of the things make sense. Um, specifically, this evil it and all of that, it just doesn't make sense without the foundation of, of Christianity. And like you said, too, you know, you can tell a story with the themes that they have in this movie, but you can't call it A Wrinkle in Time. It's a disservice to a 50-year-old book that's beloved by millions of people around the world. Um, and it's a disservice well, to anybody who sees the movie. It's a disservice yeah. to the adaptation and the characters yeah. that you get. And it's like that. You set an expectation by using that as your basis. And we go in expecting something along those lines. And when you take such a large thematic element, whether you like it or not, out, and you don't, you one, don't replace it with anything, and two, you just completely change it. Like it's no longer true to what we're expecting. Yeah. And that's not, you're setting your viewers up for an experience that you're not delivering. Yep. Which is exactly what happened. Yes. Well, and, and, and they should expect, I mean, it'd be like going to the lion, the witch in the wardrobe and excising the lion. Yeah. Or we were talking about like watching Harry Potter, but they're not wizards. Right. Like reading Harry Potter, but they're, they're not wizards. Yeah, it just it doesn't make sense. And so, yeah, for me, Oprah doesn't work at all. Um, I'm right there with you, too. I, I didn't feel like Mindy Kaling had much to do. And I don't feel like I don't feel like that they made her special enough. One of the interesting, quirky things about her in the book is, uh, yes, that she's always just quoting things because for her, it's difficult to um, to think in our language anyway. And so it's easier for her to just quote people. Um, and one, the quotes don't have as much weight here because she's quoting ridiculous things outcast like outcast. And, um, and some of the quotes just also don't really make sense. Like no. there are stronger quotes you could have pulled to say the same yes. thing. And she picked, they picked like these weaker quotes that don't quite have the same definition and like depth to them. Right. They're all very superficial. And, um, you know, I, I think the one person that I did enjoy was Miss What's-It. I, I think you're right. Reese Witherspoon kind of really had... I, I think she was just having a great time with it and having a... Um, and I also... Uh, the, the other thing that I think is I actually think that the uh, costuming design for them limited all of them so much. Like, Minnie Kaling could barely walk in her costumes. So it... Why do they look like bejeweled fairies? Like, that's not how they're described in the book at all. And to me, it was just, it seemed like amateur hour at a really bad high school play that they literally have bejeweled eyebrows. Like I, I visually loved it. I thought they were beautiful and stimulating and it, it made them kind of stand apart from what like you think of regular humans because they're not supposed to be human, right? So I, I liked that they went real bold, but I agree in that 
it was very actually physically restricting for the actors. You know, you gave kind of a flowy dress for Reese Witherspoon so she could move around in her arms and her legs and kind of run, even though in the weird sheet one at the beginning, which was kind of weird with the cloud sheet thing over her head. But I do agree that some of that was too restricting. Or even if it wasn't physically restricting on them, the actors were acting like it was. So even if she could still move around a lot, she didn't. So it looked like it was because of this weird dress with these giant, like saddles for hips you know like I I think you could have found a compromise in there and made it magical and and beautiful without it being um so restrictive like you could have made it whenever I think of like the magical weird costumes I think of um stardust Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where they have some color and some vibrancy but they're still moving and flowing and their bodies are still a part of the acting it wasn't the case in this well and and the other thing too um and this is something uh, you know the book the the misses are characters that feel a lot more like the witch at the beginning of beauty and the beast who comes to the home isn't beautiful is very unassuming and of course the prince dismisses right um everybody kind of dis- would dismiss the misses here um and yet they've made them these unmissable people and yet that's that's not who they are portrayed in the book and so again i i feel like the costuming takes them so over the top it's hard to buy that people wouldn't just be like what the heck is walking down the street right it just it doesn't make a lot of sense so um it's just it's one more thing that just they tried so hard to make this visually stimulating and beautiful environment and i think they succeeded but there was no context behind it and in the book they spend a lot of times in a lot of different worlds and because of time they spend a lot of time in one place and sometime in another and that was it like it he was the only other time you got to see any of these other three or four universes that da- the dad tessered to was in Meg's vision. So you got a less than a second snippet of some of these ma- like fantastical worlds um, that we really get to explore more in the book. And so they invested a lot of time and a lot of money right in the beginning. And then that was it. We went to one fantastical place and that was about all we uh, what did you think about the happy medium and uh, changing that from being a woman to Zach Galifianakis and then giving him a flirtation with Miss What's-It? I thought it was cute. I didn't really care about the flirtation. It is what it is. Um, I thought the idea of this weird... I, I like when she's like, oh, I'm, you know, when you're a billion years old, like, you know, labels are, you know, they don't define you or whatever. You don't need a def- defined relationship or whatever. I thought that was really cute. Um, and I, I thought Zach Galifianakis did a great job. I had very low expect low expectations for him. Um, but again, I think that the people who did the best in this movie are the people who are used to playing a character that's over the top, because I think that's really what this needed is a lot of over the top. Um, and I think unless you were going to let Mindy Kaling be Mindy Kaling and be this super drama-y over the top girl, which could have been hilarious as Mrs. Who, you could have totally let her do that. Um, Unless you sort of had those over-the-top attitudes, I don't know that the characters worked. Which is why, like, Reese Witherspoon's over-the-top character worked. She's sassy, right? She's done that before. She's been in sassy movies since the 90s. Zach Galifianakis being just sort of weird and out there. He's done that before. Like, and they both did great at it. Um, So I liked him as the seer. I liked he was able to evoke some emotion. I think that was probably the only time in the movie, the scene with him and Meg and their sort of like connection. I think that was the only time that I was actually sort of invested in this movie and like really sort of drawn in and was like, oh, okay, there's there's potential. And then we leave him and we don't have anything else. And I was like, no, no, come back. I've never thought I'd say that about Zach Galifianakis, but come back. I I think part of it was I was struggling with why they needed him to be a him because in the book it's another her. It's another her. And um it seemed kind of strange to me that you would do a sex change on this character. Um and then I, the flirtation part, I mean it's fine, but it also just distracts I think from what's really supposed to be happening in the story there because this it's supposed to be focused on Meg at that point and them finding her father and all this stuff and 
I feel like, again, this is the script just having a problem and trying to kind of insert more modern type things into the story because they think that's what it needs, but it doesn't need this. It's not awful. It's not bad. It just doesn't need it. And and it, it kind of is distracting from what really is important. Like you said, the moment where Meg is kind of uh, struggling to kind of find her balance, find her medium. Um, and, you know, they have the moment. And I think that is nice. But it has less weight to it because they kind of spent so much time at the beginning of this of these scenes, like him flirting with, you know, Reese Witherspoon's Miss What's It and them kind of going back and forth. And, and that's not the focus of this scene. But, you know, we spend at least a good two minutes uh, having some back and forth with them and all this stuff. I guess I didn't find that part as distracting as the good solid two to three minutes we spent on everyone trying to get their balance. Yes. Like, yes. It, it, Nothing in this movie was paced appropriately. No, it didn't. It didn't have no. a good pacing. It did. They didn't know when to shorten things and lengthen others. And I, I mean, watching them all stumble on these weighted blocks, you could have done that in like fifteen seconds. You could have done that fifteen twenty seconds, would have had the same impact. But instead, we had to spend a good solid two to three minutes watching them all struggle, and then them try to get their balance. And then it was like not. It wasn't over the top enough to be comical, but it was too long to be an aside and. The, it, the pacing was just off. Um, and f- I guess for me, the flirting... Well, first of all, I didn't even remember that the seer was supposed to be a woman. So for me, I didn't even know that... Like, that didn't even occur to me. Um, probably the joys of not having read the book um, again more recently. Um, but for me, I think just he did such a great job that I was just happy for a breath of fresh air. Like, I was just happy that that was... Mm-hmm. A, he was good at that role and that we had a good scene there. And it was one of those things where I feel like at that point I pretty much just written off the movie and I was like, well, I'm going to find the enjoyable parts of this that I can yeah. and enjoy them because there's going to be lots that I don't enjoy. And there's so much of it that I'm not a fan of. So I think for me, I was just kind of happy to have something that was enjoyable mm-hmm. and I was expecting it to be terrible. I went and going, this is going to be bad. And then it was good. And I was like, Oh, okay. I'm pleasantly surprised. So I, I just, I guess I was like, you know what? If it worked and it made me, it made me smile, it made me smile. That's where we're going to go mm-hmm. with and we're going to move on. So I think at that point I lowered my expectations so much. I was just like, I don't care. If it's enjoyable, it's enjoyable. <laughs> None of this is true to the book. I've let that go. Yeah. The one thing that too they missed about the medium scene was that it explains the why of all this. Yeah. You know, they explain what this uh, black thing is. It's the personification of evil. Um, and the medium helps them see how Earth is partially covered in the darkness, but it's the great, um, you know, religious figures like, you know, uh, Gandhi and Buddha and, you know, Jesus and um, the philosophers and the artists who have been fighting against this. And in fact, they even reveal that Miss What's It was actually a former star who exploded in self-sacrifice to fight the darkness. So you like... They kind of took away a lot of special and un- things that help you understand the why of the story because they're too busy playing around with silly things, like you said, trying to like balance. And it just, it doesn't make sense. And I think the worst in the adaptation there was when they went to Camazot. And that story, they they do this whole action scene where they have to get over this wall or whatever <laughs> that is yeah. absolutely one hundred. Not only is it not in the book, but it's just an absolute waste of time. It's like they felt like they just needed an action scene to be an action scene. But again, you took away from all the storytelling elements of of the why when you get there and all the stuff that happens and the fact that you know this is a place where the it has taken over and everybody is in lockstep with the it like you don't have a choice you're um it's the happy bliss of not having to choose right because the it makes the choice for you like you lose all sense of any anything that you are because you're only the it and you don't have a choice but to be the it because you've chosen to let the it control your life you know and again it's a it's a 
religious thing. You're so worked yeah, up. Yeah, I'm it's so hilarious. worked up because it's a, I it, wish you all could see him. He's so angry. <laughs> it's a religious, it's the religious aspect of the story of, of, and she's using it as the parallel for sin that you, you're stuck. You can't choose. And it's only the people who fight against that and, and like choose to be who God made them to be that, you know, they're, they're, they're God given talents um, to be the unique person that God created them to be that can fight against it, which is, again, it's the religious figures and the philosophers and the artists and all these people who embrace fully who they're meant to be and use their talents to then spread that to others. But they don't do any of that. And it just, and then it doesn't make any sense because, like, then Charles Wallace turns and they haven't explained that. So the adaptation in the script fully fall apart here because again they're not willing to have the foundation of the story and then they won't fill the foundation with anything that can actually hold what they're trying to do so and it felt so at my job my like everyday my non-602 club movie watching job um i do some of the things I do is like I train people on stuff. So either new topics or, you know, develop career development skills, like lots of stuff, right? You train things. And I in turn attend a lot of trainings on stuff, right? And there's this thing that trainers do when they're unprepared and that they'll be doing talking about a topic. Oh and oh and oh and then you do this. Oh and this is an aside. Oh and you need to know this. They'll just throw it in. I feel like this movie did that. Oh and a lot. Oh, and by the way, you're really smart and we're going to give you an opportunity to show how that you know how physics works in your mind, except for you really don't know how physics works because that wasn't actually physics. And, you know, like he's just going to look at you with this weird like, you're so smart. Like, it's just weird. They kept throwing these things in there because they forgot. They realized they hadn't told you it yet. Oh, yeah, that's right. We haven't painted the fact that Meg's really smart. Oh, yeah, we haven't painted the fact that Charles Wallace is this child prodigy who's super susceptible to the it. Oh, yeah, we haven't painted the fact that um, Calvin is the diplomat. So we're going to just throw that in here. Just going to throw it in the salad. They're just like, oh, yeah, and, oh, and, and, oh, we haven't established the fact that they needed to build trust together. So we're going to create this giant elaborate scene that forces Calvin to trust Meg. Oh, yeah, and like it, that's exactly what the end of this movie was. It was like, oh, yeah, we never told them this. We never told them this. And they're just like throwing it. It's like darts at a dartboard. They're just throwing it at it, hoping something sticks. And they never, it's like they created the story and went on and never went back to the beginning and said, let's read this all the way through and see if it makes sense because it really doesn't make sense. You should have introduced these things earlier. When you're at the final climax, you should not be introducing new information. You shouldn't be having Meg use physics for the first time 90 minutes into the two-hour-long movie. You know, you shouldn't have trust being established 90 minutes into the movie when you should have had been doing that all along. And, you know, it's just there were things that they just... We should have told you that the what's-its can't go to, you know... Camazaz. Camazad? Camazad that the who's can't go to or the w's misses can't go to camazad because you know there's no light there like they mentioned that but only after they go there you know like it just nothing worked nothing was resented at the right time not i mean we spent a lot of time in that field like a way long amount of time in that field way longer than we needed to spend and it just it was hard it was it was really really hard well, and a, and a couple of things, um, too, is that one of the, the nice thematic elements that plays out is that when um, Kate's dad, Dr. Burry, and Calvin and her escape from Camazot. Um, or try. They try, and they end up yeah. in the book on this other planet called Excel. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's not in the story at all. But it's at that point where um, we have this glorious character. They're in this place that's like um, nobody can see, but these characters can see uh, that live there. And we meet Aunt Beast, who's a great character. And 
Meg has to overcome the anger she has at her father for not being able to fix everything. And it's this wonderful coming-of-age moment where you realize that your parents can't solve all your problems and that there are going to be times where you are going to be required to solve your own problems and that it's going to be her that has to save the day because she has this love for Charles Wallace that her parent, her dad doesn't have that same connection because he's been gone. And it's this whole beautiful thing Um and that's totally lost in the movie. And it's sad because it's a great, it's a much better moment than Chris Pine's character getting the whole, well, I wanted to shake hands with the universe and maybe it was kind of selfish for wanting to leave and everything. Like, it's, I get what they're trying to do, but it, 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 it it's not a good enough, um, it's not a good enough foundation as it was as Engle wrote it in the book. And again, what they were placing it with just isn't working thematically on screen. And I think you adequately put everything that it, it just became and, and, oh, and, and they kept doing that. But then they ran out of, oh, ands, and you were just left with just this kind of muddled thing at the end that wasn't making a ton of sense. And part of it, the biggest part is that when you pull the core out of a story and you try and tell the story still, if you've taken away you its heart, re- you just... You have ha- to replace yeah. it. You have to put something yeah. else there. You had to figure out if you were going to remove religion and Christianity from the story, you had to find something to fill that void. I don't know if it's possible. I'm sure it is. It may not be. I don't know. But... They didn't replace it with anything. Yeah. They tried to replace it with love, but not strongly enough. And it didn't work. For me, right. her dad really let me down. And it was very different from the book because in the book, she learns her parents aren't, or her dad in particular, is not capable of something, right? He well, and that he's that not love. a perfect person, too. Like, those are the, yeah. Right. Right. And then in the movie, though, it was different. It was that he chose not to do something, which made him not a perfect person, which is a very, very different parental feeling. You have this more like now Meg has to live with this guilt of knowing her dad would have left her brother behind versus in the book where it was he wasn't capable of it. It's not that in the movie, it's not that he couldn't have done it. He could have let Meg try. Like, they could have tried, but he just was so afraid he didn't do it. It was a different flaw, and it was a much bigger flaw, and it it really, it's one of those flaws that as a parent, it forces your kid to grow up a lot faster. Like, Meg had to grow up, and it's a lot to cope with. It's a lot different than learning your parents are not as capable of everything. It was a very different parental flaw, and it was hard. It was hard to watch. And it was hard for them to watch their reunion when he came back in and had to apologize. Like, you left your son. And not because you couldn't get to him, but because you were too afraid. And that is different than in the book where he was not capable of it. And she was... Right. It didn't make her special. It made her, like, the only one willing to. Which is different. Right. And a well, very and different fault. Exactly. And not the point. And not the point. And it mm-hmm. was it's it was hard to watch. It was really hard to watch. Well, and, and, and again, there's this whole thing, too, about love in the story. And like you said, can you excise the heart of a story, um, especially something as big as, um, you know, basically taking... Christianity out of something and can you find something to replace it with and they obviously did not find the right thing to try and replace it with and I think you asked a great question can you do it well at least from this movie you can't like um, this movie the answer is no you cannot replace Christianity with something else because the philosophies that they try to replace it with just don't hold up thematically to the story that they should be trying to tell and um I think that the, the the problem with it is that everything ends up wishy-washy and it doesn't make a lot of sense in the end because the love and the idea of evil and all of these things clearly have a firm foundation as you're reading the Ingle story. Um, and even if you don't believe in the same thing, you understand where she's coming from and it makes thematic sense. Here... By the time we get to the end of the movie, it doesn't make a lot of thematic sense. And in the end, too, I feel like the movie's 
greatest thing to say is that really what's best for the universe is that you learn to love yourself. Yeah. That's, and, I, and the movie paints this dad as someone who wants to touch the stars and do these things, and, and it's amazing. And the mom is really this character that helps him love humanity and brings it back, right? Which is kind of an interesting story we could get into in terms of scientists and the lack of emotional intelligence and all that stuff that could be its own whole webcast if you really want it to be. But it made it feel like the tessering was almost not a choice. It was almost like he stumbled upon it, right? And he he wanted to learn this and all of a sudden it happens and he's like, oh my gosh, what happened? And then when you meet him, he apologizes like he did it intentionally. Like, oh, I didn't mean to leave you guys forever, but I meant to do this on purpose, which doesn't really add up with what you'd seen so far. And it doesn't, it almost makes you dislike his character even more. Like, I disliked that dad by the time we got done with this movie that I was like, that dad should have stayed gone. That dad should have been a sacrifice. He should have died. He should have died trying to save Charles Wallace. Like, there was so much I didn't want him to come back because it wasn't, he wasn't good. He wasn't good for them. He wasn't teaching them good morals. He wasn't being a strong dad for them. Like, he loved Meg, but... You've also got him loving one kid over another because it's his biological kid instead of his adopted kid. So now you've hit this weird yeah, line. And, and, like, and that's come on. The, again, that's it's the thing so that weird. they didn't explain very well because in the book it's very clear that Meg has the relationship with Charles Wallace because she's been around Charles Wallace since he's been cognizant, right? Um, and they they don't do that well enough and by making him adopted, I get what they're trying to do, but I think they actually hurt the story more than help it because of what ends up happening. Um, the other thing is too, is that, yeah, right. The tessering thing, you know, the idea that love is the frequency of the universe. Like, that's great. That's kind of cool. That's, you know, that's very, um, interstellar of them, which I love interstellar. And I love the idea of this idea of love being something that we can't explain. Right. Agreed. I like the concept. I really like that. But here again, they just don't do it well enough to where it makes you feel like it makes sense. And so, and I think, you know, we could, I guess we could continue to go on, but I'd say lastly in, in, in adaptation or, you know, production design, the thing that kind of really bothered me was the, the way that they move the camera is awful in the movie where everything seems to be close up on their face. Yeah. And it just, it, it I don't know. There's there's nothing about the way the camera moves in this movie that I like. And I also did not like that it felt like a weird Grey's Anatomy episode that they threw in these random pop songs. Um, the score, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it just didn't fit. It doesn't fit the movie. Like, there's so, so much about what they're trying to do. I... My husband had a theory on the score because I agree. I feel like music is something that can have a dramatic impact on the movie. Oh, absolutely. Think about Jurassic Park and Harry Potter. Those those theme songs are so iconic that you don't even have to have seen the movie, but you hear it, you know, and it gives you a feeling and a thought. Right, right. It's so it's so powerful. And my husband has this theory, and I totally agree that they spent tons and tons of money in these visual effects, right? Because they're stimulating. There's lots of color. It's very strong in the CGI. Like everything is over the top, right? And then they got down to the end and they're like, oh crap, we're out of money. And what do we do for a score? Because we have no money. And since it's Disney, they went, oh, we have this whole vault of music. We'll just use whatever's in the Disney vault. We'll find something that fits. It's almost like they went to a closet and said, oh, it's okay. We'll just make this work. And because they did that, it didn't work because you didn't, they weren't thoughtful in what they selected and they didn't invest in that as much as they invested in this like visual effects. So you have these stunning, beautiful visual effects and zero score to go with them. Like the scene with the flowers that are talking in color, you needed a strong, beautiful music to go with that. That was upbeat and you could hear in an orchestra playing at a symphony. And I don't even remember what it was. It was so forgettable. Um, so I agree. I think that they pulled from like a backlog of scores that are either free or really cheap for Disney to use because they already own them. And it just was whatever was left over. They did. Yeah, it wasn't good. Um, It just doesn't work. You know, I I get, you know, Disney loves, uh, you know, Demi Lovato and stuff, but it 
did, yeah, it just it doesn't fit with the flow of the movie, and so um, I I guess uh, I want to ask you if if you were to rate uh, a Wrinkle in Time, uh, what would you rate a Wrinkle in Time, Drea? Would give it one out of three misses. Okay, yeah. Um, or that's like three and a half yeah. out of ten. I liked that it has good intentions. Maybe you hadn't called it a wrinkle in time, I'd feel differently. Mm. They, you know what they say about the road to hell? It's paved with good intentions, y'all. Yeah. Um, so, and a wrinkle in time, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> um, my, my wife will tell you, uh, and our friends that I went to the movie with, will tell you that I turned to them um, when this was over, and I was livid, absolutely livid at what I had seen. And I was so angry that you would take a wrinkle in time, a, you know, beloved children's classic, and turn it into this. And again, like you said, I think you called it out perfectly. Just tell this somewhere else and call it something different. But don't call it a wrinkle in time. Um, and so, for me, this is one and a half... Out of ten Miss What's It dress changes, it is that bad. <laughs> um, so, and it gets an extra half a star, maybe just because I enjoy Reese Witherspoon. Mm-hmm. But and that kid who plays Charles Wallace, he, yeah, he was pretty cute for having zero direction yeah. and not like a good, well-developed character. He did a mm. great job of being this yeah. odd child prodigy who becomes this sort of evil mastermind and then loves his sister. Yeah, like he, he played like kind phenomenal. of obnoxious, know-it-all, I don't know how to deal with the fact that I know Lo- more than everybody kind loves of thing. Loves his yeah. sister endlessly. Like, I totally bought the love from Charles Wallace to Meg. Like, that direction, yeah. I yeah. think he did a phenomenal job. Like, he did awesome. I want to see what he does next because he's great. Yeah. Um, Maybe that's where my stars come from, is him and Reese Weatherspoon. I would totally go, I would watch a movie with the two of them any day. Yeah. Put it on Lifetime. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, you know, definitely uh, it it was frustrating. And I one of the things that was an interesting thing for Dre and I to have to do here, I think, is is um, I, I we tried to be as constructive as possible with every um, thing that we said that we had a criticism of. And to say why it doesn't work for us and what you should try to do to fix it. Um, but I do feel like that this movie is kind of unfixable unless you just want to go with what was on the page thematically. Otherwise, I, I just don't think you should have told the story. So, um, but very excited. I, I want to believe. Yeah, for me, I want to believe there was something you could have done if you wanted to remove religion. I feel like with a stronger script, you could have woven that love theme in a little bit stronger. It might have been different than the book, and maybe that's where we should have called it something else, or it's a story inspired by The Wrinkle in Time. We have lots of movies like that. Um, I want to believe they could have done better at this, but I just feel like it was so many first-time or not well-guided decision makers along the way that I think we just had one impediment after another. And I think all of that together, just the second we started the movie and he's talking to her and we start the next scene of her waking up during the storm, repeating the exact words we had just heard. I was like, "Uh Oh, we're in for it. Like, yikes. So I want to believe it could have been great. I feel like give it 10 years and someone will remake it again and maybe they'll do a better job. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I had, I had faith it could have been done and they just didn't do it. They didn't even come close. So. Well, and yeah, and I would say, you know, again, you know, you, you had the wherewithal to do Narnia and to do it right. Um, for the most part, um, there's nothing wrong with telling this story, um, and just sticking by it, you know, um, it's and and the story itself, if you've read the book, um, is a little bit open minded because when she's calling out religious figures, she doesn't just call out Jesus, right? So, well, and she got 
on a on a real life page. So the um, author used to also write for one of the evangelical groups, like for their newsletters mm-hmm. and their content and stuff. And she got a lot of flack and a lot of pushback for yes. this book because it's not sort of a mainstream Christian view, and it's not this like exact defined destiny that this that the church always had supported so it it was a religious book for sure because you know she's a religious author but Mm -hmm. it was definitely more of a new age approach to it especially when you're talking it was the 60s Um, it was definitely a new way of thinking about it so you know you could have played with that a little bit you could have still talked about the themes Mm -hmm. without calling them god or directly calling them out so there was things you could have done but uh I just, they didn't. D- Disney just failed on this one, and that does not happen often. Disney does not often yeah. complete failures. Yeah. So I'm curious. I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant only because I don't, Disney doesn't fail often, right? It's a, we kind of just covered that, but you have such a diverse cast and you have uh, a female of color director, um, and I'm a female of color lead. And, you know, I just, I worry that no one will take a chance again. And I don't want to see that because I still think they have so much to offer. And I don't think that they was any one person's fault, right? This didn't happen because one person ruined everything. Um, So I I feel like I'm nervous whether we're still going to see this sort of diversity going forward or if a large studio like Disney is just going to be like, well, we tried that once in a wrinkle in time and it didn't work. So I really, really don't want that to be the case. Um, And I really want to see this act, the, these actors do more and I want to see this director do more and I want to see what happens and maybe we can just not maybe Oprah could go back to doing voice work because she did great <laughs> at that <laughs> but maybe we just need less Oprah face on the screen especially being 20 feet tall or whatever I don't know um, but I, I want I want to see more I just don't want to see that again yeah, look, I, I don't think any of that was the problem um, Ava no, I agree. directed Selma and Selma's amazing yeah. You know, um, so I don't think it, it, any of those uh, any of those things were an issue. Any of the choices they made for the cast and what you know color they were that is absolutely has nothing to do with this. It has to do with the script and the choices Ugh. made with the production. And so, and part of that is the director, um, but it, maybe she's just she was mis uh, mishired for this this job. And that's that's totally and again that happens to directors, right? You know, I mean, not everything that Steven Spielberg's directed has been a hit, so um, and been the best movie ever. So it's it just part of it. So no, this has nothing to do with a, a a person's ethnicity or anything like that. It just has to do with the job that they did in the movie that they made. And sometimes you have a hit, and sometimes you don't. This one just right. doesn't work. Um, I am more saying I don't want the studio to use this as a crutch. Like, I don't want them to use this as to to place that blame. I don't want to see other movies or studios use this as an excuse for that because you're right. It's not any of any of this fault has. It's a combination of fault. It's between script and maybe the director not being supported by producers or the studio. I don't know. We don't know. But it's definitely a script flaw. There's definitely some post-production flaws here. Um. But I mean, I just, I really don't, I really hope this doesn't cause future studios not to take a risk mm-hmm. or not to look past some of these attributes yeah. that have held these people back for so long. Um, well, so, and it I shouldn't mean, because, I mean, just think about this, Black Panther is making a billion dollars, right? And it's um, directed by Ryan Coogler and, you know, he did a fantastic job. In his direction, and Jordan, Jordan Peele just ran, won yeah, several exactly. awards for so, Get I mean, Out, you know, know, which was a horror movie yeah, too, absolutely. which is amazing. So, so I mean, again, I, I think that we can't be in that place for sure. Um, we, but we do need to be able to say, as I think we adequately did on the episode here, that there are a lot of bad decisions um, in this movie. Part of that's the director. Part of that's the, those are the writers for the script. Part of that's the studio. Part of that maybe that the choice and an actor that they did get for the roles. I mean, there's a, there's there's blame to go around for everyone. This movie just doesn't work. It's it's a train wreck, um, and it's disappointing that that's the case because um, it's a well beloved book. And with Disney, you would hope that they would do it right, and they just don't hit the mark in this one. And that's okay. It's gonna happen. It's not the end of the world. It is just a movie. 
Um, it's bound to happen at some point, yeah. Disney. <laughs> so, but um, I'm really glad we got a chance to, to talk to this because I think it's, look, I, I, I think um, us having this conversation, we're trying to uh, articulate uh, adequately and without trying to tear anybody down why this doesn't work and, and just say, hey, it doesn't work. That's okay. Um, and I think that it's a good conversation to be able to have in this world where everything is either the best or the worst. This is closer to the worst. Mm-hmm. But I think we can talk about why that's the case, the decisions you make, um, and be constructive in that so that our feedback isn't, well, that was just stupid and that was just dumb and like that that's not good conversation. So um, if you saw the movie and you love it, let us know why. Hit us up on all the social media platforms. Like us there. Follow us and comment back. We'd love to hear what you have to say. I want to thank Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson for supporting us over on Patreon. They're our social producers here on the 602 Club and really appreciate them. Now, Patreon is the way that you can support the network and make sure that all the shows that we do keep coming to you each and every week because there is no way that we can, as hosts, uh, pay for everything that this network has. It's just too big, so we need your help. Go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you could become part of our team we have many different ways we love giving back to you again it's patreon.com slash trek fm now drea uh, if anybody wants to catch up with you talk to you see what's going on what else you're up to where can people find you you can come listen to more of matt and i dribble about fun stuff and come listen to us um on the nerd party we do a podcast called the owl post um, where we're going through and doing harry potter chapter by chapter um, we are through books one, two, and three, and just a few chapters into the Goblet of Fire. So um, you can come listen to us talk more there if you had a good time today, which I hope you did. Um, or you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at PCFChick, or I'm on Instagram at Drea Kaufman, and it's C O F F M A N. And you could find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm on Instagram under the same name. Uh, I'm here in the network, of course, doing the Orb, Chris Jones talking about a star trek deep space nine uh, i'm also over on the nerd party network when i'm not with drea i'm with my friend john talking all about star wars on aggressive negotiations it is a blast i hope you will check it out in fact uh, we were just celebrating the end of rebels uh, with co-executive producer henry gilroy so check out that interview it was a blast if you love rebels want to know more about it the entire series check that episode out uh and you can also find me doing a show called cinema stories with my friend courtney where we talk all about films through the lens of the faith and you may just hear us talk about soon a wrinkle in time so thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you. Yeah.